Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, we are officially in the holiday season, the Christmas season, and you maybe have heard this phrase a time or two before, but it is the most wonderful time of the year. That's at least what people call it. And so you would think, who doesn't like Christmas? You know, besides the Grinch, who's a fictitious character, Christmas is awesome. So much joy and happiness and giving and laughter and, you know, whatever. Um, But with Christmas, uh, there are some controversies that you may have noticed the last several years. Uh, a lot of things that are very contentious about this time of year. You know, even one of them has been recently, can you even say Merry Christmas when you're out talking to people or at the store or whatever? Because what if they don't celebrate Christmas and will you offend them? And are you trying to shove your belief down your throat? And so there's all this uproar about even saying the phrase, uttering the words, Merry Christmas. And then there's this other thing uh, that has come up here and there even around the country the last few years, and that is about, you know, nativity scenes, especially out in public places or in front of government buildings, and is there a separation of church and state issue here, and is that appropriate, and is that offensive, and is that a, should we do that? So you would think it, it should be simple, right? It should be easy, but yet there are these controversies about Christmas that come up. But with, even with those two that are very contentious issues, there's actually one other one that I think may be the most contentious Christmas controversy issue of all, and that is Hallmark movies. Yes, you heard me right. Hallmark movies are, can be very contentious this time of year. And here's the thing. You either love them or you hate them. That's why they're so divisive. I'm sure families have been torn apart this time of year, of all years, because of Hallmark movies. And I won't tell you where I stand on that issue personally, uh, but in thinking about this controversy, I did actually find um, a a holiday movie that I thought sounded pretty cool, a Hallmark movie. that. And so I just want to read to you the description of this Hallmark movie. And uh, just you, you tell me what you think, if you think you would like this movie. I'm going to read it. It's on the back of this DVD here. So the, the description of this movie is, A young widow moves to a new town and starts working on a single man's farm. Sparks fly between them, but will a last-minute hiccup prevent a happily ever after from affecting generations to come? Actually, this is not a Hallmark movie at all. I was just, I was just kidding. That's actually the description of this week's teaching in our series, Greater. It sounds like a Hallmark movie. I made a description as if it were a Hallmark Christmas film, but it's actually a story from the Old Testament of the Bible that we're going to explore today. So in this series, Greater, we've been looking at these key, uh, important Old Testament people, these Old Testament figures, and looking at what, what, what makes them great. Why would we call them great people? And then we're looking at then bringing Jesus in to compare that they were always pointing to Jesus. They were always really pre-representing who Jesus would be in the New Testament. 
uh, by their life and their actions and all those types of things. And so today we're going to look at maybe the least known of all of the ones we'll look at in this whole series, and yet probably my favorite story, my favorite week of this entire series. And so I want to share this with you today, and we're going to look today at this person from the Old Testament named Boaz. Boaz is an interesting guy, and he really does relate very well to Jesus. And so we're going to kind of frame this week a little bit differently than we have the past several weeks. Uh, What I'm going to do is actually just tell you this story about this man named Boaz, which actually includes a couple of other pretty key people in this story. So just indulge me for a few minutes while I kind of talk us through this hallmark Christmas story, if you will, that actually happened and is actually in the Bible about this man named Boaz. What's interesting about this story and about this person is that Boaz doesn't really, he's not the opening character. Uh, he doesn't come along for a little bit, and, but, but he is who we're going to focus on today, okay? So the story of Boaz is actually the story of Ruth. So you're not going to find the book of Boaz in the Old Testament. You're going to find him in the Old Testament book called Ruth, named after a woman named Ruth. And her story, even though the book is named after her, her story begins with another person, another woman named Naomi. So the story of Boaz starts like this. There was a woman named Naomi. Her husband and two sons lived in Israel during the time of the judges, which is the time that we've been discussing even last week with Samson, during this same time. But after Moses and Joshua, but before the kings of Israel. So during this time of the judges, Naomi and her husband and two sons live in Israel. But there's a famine that comes across the land, and they are so stricken by this famine that they have to move out of Israel, and they move to the neighboring country called Moab. Now, Moab is actually not very friendly with Israel, but they decide to go there anyway to survive the famine that's in Israel. And so soon after moving to Moab, Naomi's husband dies. And so she has to mourn this loss in this new foreign land. But a silver lining here is that her two sons, around the same time, both marry women from Moab. One is named Orpah, the other is named Ruth. And so they live their life for about a decade or so, and things are going fine. But then, tragically, about 10 years after her husband dies, both of her sons die. Now, you would think this is tragic enough, and it is, but in this time and place, in this culture in which this story takes place, this is really a tragedy. This is like tragedy built upon tragedy because in this culture, women are not self-sufficient. Women don't just go out and get a job. Women are completely dependent upon the men in their lives for survival. And the common theme of the day is a present without men means a future without hope. These women now are on their own, and especially Naomi, who is going to be older and up in age, it's going to be hard for her to remarry and to sort of gain some sort of new life. So after this tragedy happens, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear with these three, these three women who are now widowed, and there's you know, a lot of fear. However, it just so happens that around this time, the famine in Israel is now over. And so Naomi thinks, well, it's going to be best for me if I move back to Israel where I'm from as an Israelite. So she starts the journey back from Moab to Israel, and her two daughters-in-law go with her. 
But as they're on their journey to Israel, she thinks, wait, 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 what am I, what am I doing? This is not, I can't do this. And so she stops and tells her two daughters-in-law who are Moabites, she says, no, wait, 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 you girls need to go, go back to Moab. Go back where you're, you don't want to move to a foreign country as widows with another old widow. You, you need to go back home, marry nice young Moabite men and start a new life and just have your, you know, do your thing there. And so as she talks to them, Orpah, one of the uh, women, she, she's kind of talked into it. She sees, you know, hey, this is a good idea, this is a good plan. So she goes back to Moab, but Ruth says no. Says, I'm going to stick with you, I love you, I care for you, and I'm not going to do it. Here's actually what she says. Some of the most beautiful uh, words spoken in the Old Testament, and really some of the most famous words in the story of Ruth and also Boaz. So here's what she says, Ruth 1 verses 16 and 17, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So there's two key themes in this story of Boaz, and we'll get to him in a minute, just hang on. Uh, Two key themes here, and here we see the first one. The first key theme in this story is this word chesed, chesed. Now, as you can tell, I'm trying to hawk a loogie while saying that to try to say it as, as correctly as possible. This is a Hebrew word, a Hebrew term, and it means kindness or loyalty, kindness or loyalty. This, this chesed is kindness or loyalty. And it's not just that you're nice to someone or that you stick by someone, but what we see here with Ruth and Naomi is Ruth is showing this kindness and loyalty in this way because it's not just that you're nice, but it's that you're saying, I'm going to be so kind and so loyal to you, I'm not even going to consider that it might cost me something to show and extend that to you. Because what Ruth is doing is she's saying, you know what, I understand I could have a better opportunity if I left you. I understand that it would be better for me in the long run to, to leave you, but it's not good for you. I'm here for you. I'm not going to have you travel across the desert by yourself without someone to be there for you. I'm not going to have you move back after being gone for years and trying to settle in by yourself. And so she's risking her future and her plans and the rest of her life to be loyal and kind to her mother-in-law. This is that chesed, and we'll see this theme throughout this story. And so they, they travel, they keep moving on, and they settle back in Israel. So after they're there for a while, Ruth decides, hey, I need to try to figure out how we're going to scrounge by for a while. And so she decides, I'm going to go out into the fields and glean. Now, gleaning is an Old Testament law. It's a provision for the poor and for the foreigner, which Ruth and Naomi, Ruth is both of these. Naomi is just poor at this point. And so the, the, the law is that as you have these fields on your farm, you can harvest the produce on the fields, but you have to leave the edges and the corners for the poor and the foreigner to glean so they can try to scrounge by and make a living in your country. And also as you're gathering, especially if you like wheat or grain, as you gather bundles and place them for the harvesters to come and get them, if part of a bundle falls over, that's fair game for the gleaners to come. Now you would think, well, that's a pretty good deal, pretty good living. Actually, a a great comparison to trying to live this way is trying to earn a living by recycling aluminum cans. 
That's essentially what Ruth is going to go do. I'm gonna try, we're going to try to barely scrape by the only way that we can right now. So she goes out and starts to glean in these wheat fields. Now, the man, uh, maybe you can guess who this is going to be, the man who owns the field that she starts to glean in is Boaz. Here, we get to Boaz finally. This is all about him, and we haven't talked about him yet. So Boaz owns the field that Ruth is gleaning in. It just so happens that on the day that she's there, he walks by and, and checks in with his foreman. He notices this weird random woman he's never seen before gleaning, and he asks about her. And the foreman says, well, yeah, she's from Moab. She's moved back here with her mother-in-law, who's from Israel. They left during the famine. Now they've come back. They're both widows. And so she's here to try to, you know, uh, earn, earn a living to help get them by. Boaz is so moved by Ruth's chesed that he goes and talks to her. And he says, hi, I'm Boaz. I'm the owner of the field. I just want to say you're welcome to glean here. He says, actually, let me just tell you, only glean here. Don't go anywhere else. Don't try to just stay here Uh, all through the spring and summer. We'd love to have you glean. And then he says, you know, and also, I've also told the men here to to protect you, to care for you, to not take advantage of you. He's offering her protection. And then he says, and also, whenever our people, whenever they take a break, uh, you're welcome to take a break with them. Uh, and the water that they drink from our wells, you're welcome to that as well. And so he just immediately shows her this same chesed that she has been showing to Naomi. And she asks, she says, well, why are you showing me this kindness? And he says, well, I've heard that you're trying to help out Naomi, and I think that's awesome, and so I'm trying to help you out as well. So she continues to glean in the fields during the day. And then in Ruth chapter 2, it talks about when they take a lunch break, Boaz invites Ruth to eat lunch with them with the Israelite workers. Again, she's a foreigner, a foreign widow woman who really has no rights. She has very little hope, nothing to go off of, and yet Boaz is showing her this kindness and loyalty to her. So she eats lunch with them, has a box of leftovers left, and here's, here's where we start to see a turn in the story. So as they're going back out to the fields in the afternoon after lunch, Boaz takes some of his harvesters aside and says, hey guys, If you just happen to be sloppy with your work and leave more for Ruth to get, I'd be okay with that. You know, wink, wink, nod, nod, nudge, nudge. So if you happen to, you know, you're binding the the bundles in the middle and you happen to drop a couple of extra for her to come get, I'd be okay with that. You know, it's okay, guys. If you happen to be, you know, uh, harvesting and you leave a few stalks, you know, oops, oh, I skipped skipped those. Okay, Ruth, you can come get these because the law says you, you get them. I'm okay with that. And so he's, again, piling on, piling on this chesed to her because he, he sees something in her. And so at the end of the day, one day here <laughs> of gleaning, which, again, is equivalent to trying to earn a living by recycling aluminum cans, it says Ruth is dragging home this huge bag full of grain almost a month's worth. It's amazing. And so back at home, Naomi is, I'm sure, pacing back and forth, back and forth. You know, I hope Ruth's okay. I hope she's safe. I hope that she doesn't get lost. I hope that she, you know, brings something home. And here she sees her struggling to bring home this huge, heavy sack of grain. So when she gets in and shows her what she's got, plus leftovers from lunch, Naomi's first question is, okay, where did you go and how did you get this? And are we in trouble with the authorities, (laughs) okay? And Ruth says, no, 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 it was great. You know, I, I worked on the, the, in this field from a, uh, a guy named Boaz owns the field, and he was just so nice. And then Naomi's like, wait, 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 what? Who? Who'd you say? What? 
She says, yeah, it's a guy named Boaz, just a really great guy. And Naomi sees a connection here. She sees something that we haven't seen yet. Naomi says, Ruth, this is awesome. Boaz is a relative of my former husband. So God's providence is clearly at work here. So Ruth continues to work on Boaz's fields gleaning for several weeks through the spring and summer. Then we see a twist here in this Hallmark movie. We've got to have a love thing going on right here. So here's what happens. Naomi has an idea. She has a plan. She's seen something or sensed something like uh, maybe a love connection between Boaz and Ruth. And at the very least, she sees an opportunity here that must be seized upon. And so she gives Ruth these instructions. She says, Ruth, I got a plan. And it's a risky plan. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but you got to trust me here. She says, here's what I want you to do. She says, Boaz is down on the threshing floor where they get... You know, they, they take the good part of the crop and they separate it to have and they get rid of the, you know, the rest. And he says he's going to be down there working all night and he's probably going to sleep down there. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get all dolled up, get all cleaned up, get your nicest perfume, get your best makeup on, get your little black dress on and go down to the threshing floor and wait. And when Boaz is down there asleep, here's what I want you to do. She gives her instructions, and so Ruth does what she says, and here is what happens here in Ruth chapter 3 that really propels this story along. Ruth chapter 3, we're going to see that she follows Naomi's instructions in verses 7 through 9. Here's what happens. After Boaz finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down again. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. And here's what she says. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Woo! Ooh, it's getting, uh, you know, it's getting a little PG-13 up in here now in Ruth chapter 3, right? You know, spread their covering, and she uncovers his feet. There's a lot of covering and uncovering here late at night. So what is going on? Well, it is a little risque what's going on here. Even the way it's written in the original Hebrew, the original audience hearing this story for the first time is going to be a little uncomfortable. They're going to kind of be like, oh, is this appropriate to be in the Bible? Even though it's not in the Bible at, the po- you know, at that point. Anyway, so here's what's happening. Ruth is basically proposing marriage to Boaz. And this gets to the second main theme of this story involving Boaz, and that is this idea of what's called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. So a kinsman redeemer is a relative of a family member who, in the case of Naomi, when her husband dies, this relative then could buy the land from their deceased relative to take care of the family that's left behind. And they could also buy back maybe family members who have, been, who have sold themselves into slavery to earn a living, uh, which in some cases maybe Naomi and Ruth would be about to do to survive. And so he fits this description. And so Naomi's plan is really in this way. He's our family redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. And so what she also says, and probably noticing these sparks between these two people, is she says, hey, maybe add yourself in as a cherry on top to take over the land to be our family's kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth does this. 
She uncovers his feet, so it's cold. He wakes up. He looks around, sees a random woman there. He's like, whoa, this is weird. And then it's Ruth. He's like, oh, Ruth, wow, okay, you're a little <laughs> forward here, aren't you? And uh, she says these, this word, kinsman, redeemer. Being a Moabite, he knows that Naomi is somewhat behind this plan. And he's, uh, he's thrilled by this proposal. He's like, I'd love to, but here's a plot twist. He says, I, 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 yes, I'd love to, but there's someone else. And Ruth's like, oh, oh I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. And he says, well, and it's a guy. And she's like, oh, wait. He's like, no, 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 not, not like that, not like that. There's actually a closer relative to Naomi's deceased husband. And so as much as I would love to be the kinsman redeemer for her, as much as I would love to marry you as part of this package deal, I have to, by law, give him the option first. And so Ruth is like, oh, great. He says, so I'm going to meet him in town. We're going to set up a meeting, get together, and just see what happens. And so we get to the final act of this now love story. So Boaz meets with this other family member in town, and they have this exchange. Boaz says, hey, Naomi, our relative, has come back to Israel. Her husband is dead, and she's going to sell the land. She's asking about the kinsman redeemer, and you kind of are the first in line. Do you want to buy the land? Do you want to redeem the land? And the, and the, the other guy says, yeah, absolutely. If I can acquire more wealth and land and real estate, uh, you know, I'll take it. But then Boaz, there's a bit of a twist here. He throws in Ruth to the deal, just like Ruth threw herself into the deal. He says, well, you know that if you take the land, you have to marry uh, her daughter-in-law, this Moabite widow, uh, Ruth, as part of the package deal. You, you have to throw her in there. Not really legally completely accurate, but Boaz has taken a risk here. He's taken a chance. This guy is going to say no, and so there's kind of a pause there's kind of this moment of uncertainty, this moment of tension. What if he says yes? Boaz and Ruth will never get together. This love story that we've been waiting for, we're so close, we're not going to get it because this guy is going to take her instead. But the man says, well, if that's the case, I can't take the land because I've already got a wife and family and children, and they've got their own inheritance. And if I marry Ruth and we have children, it's going to mess everything up. So I'm going to turn down the offer. And so, happily ever after, Boaz gets to redeem the land, he gets to buy the land, and then he gets to marry Ruth, and they live happily ever after. But the impact, the lasting impact of this story of Boaz and of Ruth is not over yet. It has a much longer lasting and deeper impact even than happily ever after. And it comes down to their child, or at least the first child that they have. I want to read to you uh, their child and then their child's child and child's child's child. All, I want to read you this little short um, sort of Ancestry.com part here at the end of Ruth. This is Ruth chapter 4, and uh, look at this real quick with me. Ruth chapter 4, 21 and 22, it says this. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz. There he is. Boaz was the father of Obed. That's their son. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. So the lasting impact of this story of Ruth and of Boaz is that Boaz is the great-grandfather of King David. That's pretty cool. Again, if all these things didn't happen in the way they did, if God hadn't directed the steps of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz 
perfectly, this story would look different. However, because God did what he did, and because Naomi did what she did, and Ruth did what she did, and Boaz did what he did, now they have this lineage that includes the greatest king in the history of their country. But their impact even goes deeper than that. Let's skip ahead to Matthew now to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to see a similarity and then we're going to skip several more generations and see an even greater, longer lasting impact that Boaz had. Matthew 1 verse 5. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That's another great character, another great story that we haven't even talked about yet. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There she is. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Now, we know that. We've already said that, right? But skip forward several more generations, down, 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 down to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1. In the same line, the family line of Boaz and Ruth is this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So, Boaz, on down, down, down to King David, on down, 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 down to Jesus Christ. So Boaz is important. He's great for really what he did, his kindness, his chesed that he showed, the fact that he was the kinsman redeemer, that he fulfilled his duty and obligation to care for his family in their time of need. But ultimately, that led to the Savior of the world being born. And so as we're in this holiday season, it really is like a Hallmark Christmas movie. You see the tie-in here with the time of year. So this connects Boaz and Jesus, but again, this series is called Greater because we're seeing how Jesus is a greater version of this Old Testament person that we focus on each week. And so Boaz and Jesus, there are three main connections I want to look at quickly for just a few minutes um, to see how they're not only connected, but how in every connection, Jesus is greater than his ancestor, Boaz. So we see the first similarity between Boaz and Jesus is that they were both always around, but mainly in the background. Again, when you look at the book of Ruth, Boaz is not even named in the first chapter of the story of Ruth. In the second chapter, he's just kind of the nice farmer who lets Ruth glean on his fields. And it's not until chapter 3 that really things take this romantic turn and he becomes more of a key player. We see the importance of Boaz in this story. He's a relative of Naomi who then falls in love, it seems, with Ruth, who is in position to really change their family future. And then in chapter 4, he takes the reins. He makes this shrewd business deal with his family member who then is able to take, he's able to take the land and then win his prize of Ruth. But for a long time, he's not in the story. He's sort of a secondary kind of character. Not till really the, the second half or the final third of the story does he really become a major player. He's always there, but mainly in the background till the time was just right. Well, Jesus is exactly the same way. He's always been around, but for most of human history, he's been in the background. We see this even from the beginning of time. John chapter 1 starts the same way that Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of the Bible starts. So here's what John 1 says, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This word, word, is talking about Jesus Christ. He's always literally been around, but mainly in the background. He was there at creation. He was assisting in creation. Even in Genesis 1, when God says, let us make man in our image, he's talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit who are helping in this work of creation. Jesus is there. He's active, but he's sort of in the background behind the scenes. He's not named. He's not known. Jesus is also very much around throughout the Old Testament, even though it's very, uh, very fringe, very background-oriented. There are several appearances of um, an angelic-type beings or heavenly-type beings. You know, one of them is what, uh, Abraham has a visitation from these, you know, holy men. Um, you know, even Joshua has these appear has an appearance from kind of a mighty warrior. Now, these could be angels, but there's also scholarly debate that this actually could be an appearance of a pre-incarnate Jesus. It's possible that from time to time in very specific situations, even though he's in the background, even though he's never named, even though we don't know that it's him, it's quite possible, maybe even probable, that Jesus makes actual physical appearances on earth before he's even born. It's pretty cool to think about. He's always around, always there, but mainly in the background. And this is still actually true today. It's actually still absolutely true today. 1 Peter 1.8 says this, You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. You see, Jesus was only physically on the earth a little over 30 years. That's in the whole history of human existence, 30 or so years. The rest of that time, he's been around, but sort of in the background. And yet, Peter says that even though we've never seen him, we love him. Even though we've not seen him, we trust him. This is what's called a life of faith, living a life of faith. Jesus is not present here and now, but he's very much present. He's not physically here, but he's very much present in our lives and our existence. So let me encourage you with this. Things may not seem great for you right now, possibly. Maybe this year has been piled upon piled upon difficulty, upon difficulty, upon sadness, upon loss, upon sorrow, upon fear, upon uncertainty, just piling upon. 2020, I know for a lot of us, has been a difficult year. Maybe for you, a tragic year. Maybe for you, a sorrow-filled year. Maybe for you, a, the most fearful year of your life. And you, in that way, you can relate to Naomi and Ruth at the beginning of their story. They experienced loss and tragedy and fear and uncertainty, a future without hope, a future without promise, so much up in the air. Maybe that's where you find yourself. And so what we see here as an encouragement is Boaz is in the background, yet he makes all the difference in this story. Now, God's making the difference. God's putting the pieces together. God's orchestrating things in such a way. But here's the thing. Jesus, even though he's not physically here, is just like that in your life. Jesus is not physically with you in, in person, but he's spiritually with you. He's, he's there with you in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. He, he's there guiding you 
He's directing you. He's encouraging you. He's positioning you and things around you to work out eventually in your favor, I believe, by faith. I believe that Jesus is, he doesn't need a ton of time to make a big impact. I think his life proves that. He's literally on the earth for 33 years of human existence, and he changed the world. He doesn't need a ton of time to make a huge difference. So whatever you're facing, hang on. Whatever you're dealing with, don't lose hope. Whenever your faith meter is about to run out, don't let it run out. Stay encouraged. Stay strengthened. Stay focused on Jesus because he's always around. He may not be in the forefront. It may not be obvious to you what he's doing or what he's setting up or what is yet to come, but you have to believe by faith that Jesus doesn't need a lot of time to make a big difference. He doesn't need a lot to work with to make a big difference. So hang on. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're enduring, remain faithful, remain steadfast. Don't lose faith. Don't lose heart. Jesus is at work, even if it's in the background. The second similarity between Boaz and Jesus is that they both show this chesed. Again, the first main theme of this story of Boaz and Ruth is chesed, this kindness or faithfulness or loyalty And we see here that Boaz lets Ruth glean in the fields. Now, that is not kindness or loyalty. He's obeying the law. He has to let her glean in the fields. But everything else he does after that is chesed. It's extra. It's a cherry on top or multiple cherries on top. Remember, he he lets her have more than she's supposed to have. He gives her lunch with leftovers. He gives her personal protection from his men in the fields. Um, He gives her extra grain later on, even after she proposes. He gives her a whole bushel full of, um, of grain to send home again for even more. And then obviously he marries her, which is a bonus. He's not really required to. She's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. But because, you know, he wants to, really, it's a bonus for him too. He shows this kindness and loyalty to her that she, you know, really doesn't deserve. But he does give a reason why. At the beginning, remember, she says, why are you showing me this kindness? Why are you being so nice to me? And he says, well, it's because I heard about your kindness to Naomi. I heard about your chesed to her, and so I am returning the favor to you. So he has a bit of motivation for showing this to Ruth. But Jesus is greater than Boaz because... Jesus has zero reason to show chesed to us, yet he does. He has zero motivation to show this chesed to us, yet he does. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is chesed to an nth degree. This is like blowing your mind, sort of faithfulness, kindness. Because we are undeserving sinners, yet Jesus shows chesed to us. We are actually the offending party in this relationship. We have sinned against God. We are the cause for the crucifixion that Jesus endured, yet he endured the cross for our sake. He shows us this chesed. That's how great it is. That's how powerful it is. And that's why, as, as awesome as the chesed was that Boaz showed to Ruth, as kind and loyal as he was in his situation, the kindness that Jesus shows to us can't even begin to compare. 
it just, it blows everything else out of the water. He shows, he forgives us of our sins while we're sinners, while we've offended him, before we ask for forgiveness, before we give an apology, before we turn to him. He does it before any of that happens. That's how great Jesus is and what makes him, in fact, greater. And the third thing that, the third comparison between Boaz and Jesus is that they both redeem. They both redeem. Now, Boaz's redemption is great, right? But it's just one piece of land and includes one person in one situation. It's great. It's amazing. It's wonderful that he does this, but it's limited in its scope. It's one guy doing this one-time transaction and this one relationship. But Jesus's redemption is much deeper and goes much further and has much more meaning. One more scripture as we close, Ephesians 1 verse 7 Paul writes, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, the redemption of Jesus is that he redeems the souls of all humanity. That's deeper even than Boaz's redemption. That has longer lasting effects even than Boaz's redemption. This redeeming of Jesus is of the souls of all of mankind. But here's the key to how redemption works. The redemption of Boaz only worked because Naomi was choosing to sell her property. He, he wasn't taking it from her. She was offering it to him to redeem. It's the same way, and I've used this, this analogy before, but it bears repeating for this, this moment. Uh, the, it's the way a coupon at a store works. A coupon has little to no value, like one-tenth of one cent, that little piece of paper that you cut out from the magazine or the newspaper. Uh, it's worthless, but it's worth so much more when you choose to hand it in. Then it can be redeemed. There's an exchange that takes place. Now this thing that was worth one-tenth of one cent can be worth maybe 50 cents off or 75 cents off a product or buy one, get one free product. It's worthless until you choose to exchange it. Then it can be redeemed. That's the way it works with our salvation, our souls. Redemption only works when you and I choose to exchange our life for Jesus's life. Otherwise, our life really doesn't have the value that Jesus can bring it. Our future doesn't have the hope that Jesus can give it. Our life doesn't have the meaning that it can have and does have through Jesus. But we must choose to give it up. We must choose to let Jesus be in control. We must choose to hand our life and our plans and our future to Jesus. That's how this redemption works. And the redeeming value is amazing. On my own, I'm not that great. But in Christ, I am more than enough. On my own, I can't make anything happen. But when I give my life over to Jesus and He redeems me, then I have value. Then I have real purpose. Then I have worth beyond compare. Not because of what I've done, but because I've exchanged my life over to Jesus and have given Him control. Then I can have hope and joy and peace and security in the future. That is what makes Jesus's redemption greater than Boaz. So is Boaz great? Yeah, in so many ways, even to the point to where his decisions led to the birth of Jesus. 
But I'm sure even Boaz would tell you that as much as he did, as great as it was, as wonderful as it was, everything that Jesus did was greater. His chesed is greater. His redemption is greater because in every way, Jesus is greater. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story, this reminder of the wonderful love of Jesus through the love of this person, Boaz, to Ruth and also to Naomi. Reminds us that we are undeserving, unrepentant sinners, and yet when we turn to you, you offer that forgiveness, you offer that peace and that hope and that joy that only your chesed, your kindness can bring, and only your redemption of our souls can bring. Thank you for this redemption. Thank you for this kindness that you give that is greater than anything else we can ever experience. So today as you're watching, I just want to give this opportunity for you maybe to respond to Jesus. Maybe as you've seen this story and heard this story and seen the connection to Jesus, maybe you've not given your life over to Jesus. Maybe you're here today or watching or listening, whenever it is, wherever you are, and you would say, you know what, I don't really have hope. I don't have peace in my future. I don't really have peace right now. Maybe that thing that's missing is that relationship with Jesus. Maybe the thing that's missing is that you've not exchanged your life for his. You've not given your hopelessness over to his hope. You've not given your fear over to his joy and his certainty. You can do that today. You can experience this kindness and loyalty and this chesed from Jesus, and you can experience redemption like you've never known before. You can experience hope and peace and joy right now as you exchange your life for Jesus. And so I want to offer this opportunity to you. Just repeat this simple prayer after me. If you want to make that connection with Jesus, you want to give him your life, you want to willingly exchange your life for his, let him lead you and guide you and be in control of your life. Today can be a day where everything changes for you, and I hope that it is. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just stop for a second and repeat this prayer after me. Dear God, thank you for Jesus for his kindness to me, that even in my sin, he offers forgiveness. And so I confess my sin, and I turn to Jesus, and I give him my life. He is now in control. I'm going to let him lead me and guide me all the days of my life. I give him my sin, and I give him myself. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for new life that I have now found in Jesus. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer to let Jesus be Lord of your life, to save you from your sins, you're now a brand new person. You're the same person. You're still you, but inside everything is different. What an awesome day this is for you. This is just the first day of many great days. This is the first moment of many great moments. I'm so proud of you, so thankful that you've chosen to make that decision to let Jesus redeem you, and now everything is going to be different. Now you have hope, you have future. I I even would, would venture to say you felt a weight lifted even in this last couple of moments brand new inside. And so if you have made that decision to follow Jesus, um, to become a Christian, I'd love to hear from you. Just email me at stephen at firstcenturykc.com. I'd love to hear your story, love to learn more about you, love to connect with you. So again, email me. Let me know that you've made that decision to follow Jesus, to let him redeem you. And again, you're never going to regret this decision. I guarantee you. 
Again, thanks for joining us this weekend. Hope your holiday season is off to a great start. Have an awesome week. We'll see you Wednesday night on Facebook Live at 7 p.m. for Wednesday Night Live. And until then, God bless you and have an awesome week.